Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1729. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today, I'm back across the pond in Gloucester in the United Kingdom with a very special guest by the name of Clive Neville. Hey, Clive, welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I certainly am, Mark. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll have some fun here. Now, before I give you a proper introduction and we dive into my questions, I'd love for you to share one little thing with my listeners that maybe most people don't know about Clive Neville. Uh, you mean things that are printable, I take it. <laughs> well, it's um, a family-friendly show, but you can share whatever yeah, you'd is, like. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I'm, I think the only thing that people may not know about me is that perhaps now I'm a bona fide author. Yes, you are, big time. It only took about eight years, though, right? Yeah, yeah indeed so, but people didn't really think it was ever going to happen. Did you ever think it was going to happen? Um, no, I, I wrote it in 2011 and it only took a year to do all of the research, but the, the finalization with Rick to get it all together, to get all of the imagery and to get a publisher took an awful long time. And we had you know, challenges along the way in terms of illness and work. And so I did think at some point it wouldn't happen, but it did. And I'm very grateful for everybody who helped us with it. Well, listen, uh, we automotive enthusiasts are extremely grateful, and I'm one of them for your time today. Uh, listeners, let me give uh, you a proper introduction uh, for Clive here, and you'll understand what we're talking about. Clive Neville is a writer, and he, now he's an author, who spent his youth wrapped in the fog of the 70s, where he found a liking for long hair, music, cars, and motorbikes. He's had many motorbikes and cars pass through his garage throughout his life, and with a long career in the civil service as a writer, including briefings for government ministries, Clive adapted a style and has written a book titled The Light Car Company Rocket, The Singular Vision of Two Men. Published by my friends at Porter Press International in the United Kingdom, it is a full history of a fascinating machine that changed the sports car market and the brainchild of former racing driver Chris Kraft and design genius Gordon Murray. According to Clive, it was a story that had to be told, especially since Clive has owned a rocket. The book's designer was Rick Ward, who you'll remember is a past guest here on Cars Yeah. We're going to learn a lot more, but first a word from our valued sponsors. So sit tight, Clive. Keep your seatbelts on. We'll be right back to talk more about this book in your life. Hang on. Do you have a pet in your household that loves to go for rides? Our pets are part of our families, but they can be very hard on your vehicle's interior. Covercraft offers a wide variety of solutions to protect your vehicle from Fido's rough treatment. Canine cargo area covers are padded for comfort and provide door-to-door -door protection. Pet pads have built-in features that keep cargo areas and seats protected, Covercraft's quality pet solutions cover cargo areas, bucket or bench seats, and protect from damaging claws, pet fur and hair, mud, moisture, and drool from permanently damaging those fine finishes on your vehicle's interiors. Choose from a variety of styles and covers for almost every vehicle that's made. And here's something I've got just for you. 
and for Fido. Use the code YAH120 at Covercraft.com and you'll get 10% off your Covercraft pet protection order. That's right, 10% off. That'll make Fido happy. Simply use the code YAH120, Y-E-A-H-120 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. And Fido too. American Collectors Insurance, that's how I now protect my Porsche Turbo. The one I call my orange crush. Are you insuring your classic vehicles on your regular daily driver auto policy? Then your special vehicles are at risk. Your regular auto insurance carrier won't tell you how much you'll get until after a claim. And more than likely, you'll be in for a rude awakening. With a agreed value policy from American Collectors Insurance, you'll be paid your vehicle's full agreed value. No surprises. If you're driving your collector car less than 5,000 miles a year, do what I did. Call American Collectors Insurance and get your very own agreed value policy tailored to your specific vehicle. If you're like me, you're picky about who works on your special ride. A great policy allows you to choose your repair shop of choice, and that means you'll know the job is done right. I shopped around and decided to protect my car with American Collectors Insurance. They've been protecting vehicles since 1976. Give them a call for a quote today at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love. I did at American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. All right, Clive, we are back. And as we continue on this journey that I'm going to call your life, I would love for you to share a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying, you're a wordsmith, that has meaning for you in your life. It's a nice way to get those uh, rocket wheels spinning here on Cars. Yeah, so Clive, grab the wheel. Yeah, well, I found this a um, difficult question. Being a civil servant, I probably didn't have one because I fell into being a civil servant. And uh, I suppose when I thought about it, the my mantra is don't get caught out was mm. my main because and my dad said the same to me when I spoke to him about it. I always felt that I, perhaps I was doing better than I really should have done. And the other one, perhaps, is not getting into debt. Other than that, I don't have a personal mantra. It's basically ones which are more trying to avoid problems rather than getting becoming successful. Well, both of those mantras, I'll call them, or sayings, are definitely ways to avoid problems. Don't get caught out and don't get into, into debt. I think those are pretty good ways to go through life. Let me ask you this, Clive. Don't get caught out. How do you relate that to your life and what you've done in your life? Well, I, I think, as you might have seen from the end piece on the Rocket Book, I tried to send myself up to a degree. I think I'm probably better than I, I set, up, set myself to be. But with work, I was doing some quite important things as a civil servant, doing a lot of international negotiation with other countries, including America and European ones. And it's quite daunting. And I thought, bloody hell, am I really doing this? I still only feel 17. <laughs> but actually, I was 55 or whatever, and I was actually quite good at it. But in the back of my head, I was saying, I shouldn't really be here. Um, but clearly, I was. Well, I'll tell you, communicating through the written word is a very special skill. My son does that. And being able to especially translate that to different countries, which involve different mindsets, different, I mean, even the difference between the English, the proper English that you speak and the, the rough English we speak over here across the pond, uh, something we borrowed from you folks. You know, sometimes you can say something to somebody from another country and it can really come across as 
completely different than the way you meant it to be. So is that how that don't get caught out kind of ties to you? Did you have to be really careful the way you crafted these words? Yes, I think from the perspective of work, it was impressed upon me by a lot of consultants and others who help us to negotiate is that the British particularly, but maybe also the Americans, but less so. We use the language in a way which is very blurred. The, the British particularly do not show emotions. And if they want to say something awkward to another nation, what that will happen is that they'll try and say, we like that, but blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and unfortunately, the nation who receives it just says, "We here, we, you like it. Yes. And we use language which is deliberately flowery to avoid the confrontation that we don't like. And... It's actually awkward. Therefore, I learned particularly to be quite, not hard, but certainly firm and understandable when discussing bits and pieces. In the book, it's easier because it's predominantly for a British audience. And it was a, a hobby thing to do rather than something which might involve nations doing something else or somebody else over time, which would stand in perpetuity. I find this really fascinating because one of the things that I've always amused about is that when talking with a British person who is not so happy with you, uh, they can pretty much tell you they're not happy with you, but they sound like they're complimenting you. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yes, and, and you kind of walk away going, did I do something wrong? I think I did, but maybe not. And I'll tell you another part of this, Clive, that I find very fascinating. I talk to a lot of people. You're my 1,729th guest here on Cars, yeah. And I talked to people all over the world, and I learned very early on, one of my questions that we're going to get to today is what I call my challenge question. I get a guest to share a challenge or a failure they've faced. And I found early on with guests from the UK, they did not want to answer that question. And I had a guest on who was a race car driver, and I said, I kept pushing him and pushing him. And he finally pushed back, and he said, Mark, he said, we Brits do not like to talk about our failures like you do. You Americans almost revel in failure. We don't. Okay. Well, I think that um, Brits may have a stiff upper lip, but there are others who don't and are quite happy to acknowledge that they are human after all. But I found it very interesting. But isn't that part of life and what you got to do by writing as a civil servant and communicating with people all over the world, walk that very delicate balance between the written word and what you mean by it and how it could Absolutely. be Absolutely. Yes, indeed. When writing in, in that, and in fact, I was instrumental for writing a treaty, you have to be perfect in terms of what you mean, because it will then set out what you have to do. Oh, gosh. Yes. Treaties. Oh, my goodness. Well, and this is why countries seem to get in arguments all the time. And you stand back and go, why are we fighting each other? I don't understand. We, we, we're just humans. We just want our families to be safe and sound. And here we are. Well, let's dive into this book. And I appreciate you okay. taking me down that path. The Light Car Company. Uh, this is a wonderful book titled The Light Car Company Rocket, The Singular Vision of Two Men. Now, when I had your, your cohort, the designer of the book uh, on the show, I've learned a lot more about this company than I did before. And then having the book here, it's just a fascinating read, but it is a massive undertaking. And for a first book, boy, you dove in head first, didn't you? Uh, yes, indeed. I suppose I did. But the genesis of all of this was that um, obviously I had a rocket and a very good friend of mine had one too. And, you know, Gordon and Chris were in their, well, late 60s, early 70s at the time. And we thought, and the car was 20 years old at that point. And we thought, we must do something about this. So uh, my, my friend Nick said to me, 
go and pick up all of the archive that Chris has got and try and catalogue it so that we've got something for the future. Anyway, that didn't happen. What did happen, though, was that, well, perhaps I should write a book about it instead mm. and got Chris involved and he's very happy to, to, to give me all of the material that he had and obviously spoke to Gordon and all of the other participants in the cars manufacturing development and I was able to piece together the story and I think what was important for this particular little car which some people have heard of and uh, but probably never seen was that it was something that had to be told because it had a really human element to it it wasn't a perfect thing it's not a big corporate thing and it wasn't done perfectly but at the same time they ended up with a fantastic piece of engineering it's absolutely fascinating to me and i was not very much aware of this vehicle now it's similar in some ways to the aerial atom which we see over here in the states or the Caterham lotus 7 i mean some of these vehicles that have some kind of a relationship but this is the, the background is absolutely fascinating. Now, you're a person who had one. So describe to my listeners who maybe has have not seen what we're talking about. You can Google it. You can learn a lot that way. The book is really the way because it dives deep into the history of the development and the process of this vehicle. But describe what the vehicle is to you in a way and how much fun it must have been to drive one. I think uh, the comparisons with the cars that you mentioned, including the Atom and the Caterham, are sort of half right. I think we've got to remember with the rocket, it was two-thirds of the weight of even an Atom. It didn't use a car engine. It used a motorcycle engine. It used innovative techniques, which only Gordon Murray could think of uh, because of his uh, ability to look out of the um, box and to produce a car which was incredibly light. And it was the first of the cars which used a motorcycle engine, because some do now. Mm -hmm. But it was the ability to produce something which had quite a lot of horsepower, but not a great amount, 150 bhp, but in a chassis that weighed 380 kilograms. Okay. And as a consequence, had the sort of acceleration of a Murcielago. And uh, <laughs> not, not, not the top speed, it would run out about 135, but... It, because of the gearing and the drag, but nevertheless, something which was colossal. And I, as, a, as an owner for 11 years of one of these things, I still cannot get over the energy that the car had, despite being so light. Beautifully balanced, ability to go around our knackered old British roads, but still have a great ride, and, and the handling was sublime. But what was really good was that the ride was excellent. It didn't bump around because the suspension was so accurately uh, poised. But the other thing about it is that you, you're driving along and you're doing about 4,000 revs and you're thinking, oh, we're getting, getting along now. And then you're getting to 6,000 you say, oh, better change up. It's getting a bit noisy. And then you say, no, no, let's do it at eight. No, let's not do it today. Let's do it at 11 and a half. And the kick from eight to 11 and a half was such as though you'd been just drop kicked out of a, a football ground. Yes. It was astonishing to the extent that you think, I'm not going to survive this too much. <laughs> yes. I rode a uh, MB Agusta F4 motorcycle that revved to 14,000 RPM. And typically in the street, you'd ride it up to seven, 8,000 RPM. And it was scary fast. And I took it on the track for the first time. And that range that you're talking about there, that upper level range, it was a whole nother bike. It's like getting on cam in a race car or a hybrid yes. sports car. It turns into another beast that you just go, what on earth did I just do? Yes, indeed. But the, 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 the Augusta was 
another generation beyond the MRX up engine used in the rocket because the rocket is a 30-year-old car in mm -hmm. terms of its design. It was using the best engine they had at the time. Yeah. But since then, 1,000cc engines have got another 3,000 RPM on the clock, going yeah. up to 40 rather than 11. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. It's pretty much like driving a race car on the street, right? Yes, yeah, and as awkward sometimes. <laughs> uh, the, the, the clutch is particularly difficult. Uh, and most people say, oh, don't worry, it's a clutch, I can sort that out. And they can't. They always stall it, everybody, including people who think they know better. Mm -hmm. But you do get used to it after a while. The issue is the fact that the, uh, the drive is taken up in the last two millimeters of the, of the pedal's travel. And Gordon Murray didn't on this in, in, change the ratios from the master cylinders to uh, give it a bit more uh, leeway in, in, in the travel. So low torque, more biting point means stall. Yeah. Until you get used to it. Oh, exactly. I raced vintage cars for years, and then jumping into a vintage Formula One car and trying to pull it out of the paddock is nerve-wracking because it's the same thing. Uh, you stall it every time until you finally figure out what is that balance going. Now, this project was monumental. Not only your first book project, but compiling all the data and then somehow putting it into this story format. I always ask my guests about challenges. Let's talk about a challenge with this book. What, what were some of your biggest challenges of putting this together? And then you talked at the beginning about how long it took because of all sorts of different things that came into play. Yeah, well, I'm going to just turn that around slightly. I think that the book was a real pleasure to do. I had the time of my life. I mean, I am or was a fairly normal civil servant doing things in the international sphere. But I got the opportunity to speak to some really interesting people, including Gordon Murray and Chris Craft and, and others, and including Jay Leno, who kindly uh, rang me up at work one day. That was quite an interesting <laughs> thing. 7.30 in the office, and then I get a call on my mobile and said, it's Jay here. I went, Jay? Uh, yeah, Jay Leno, do you want to do it? And I think, yes, yes, okay. And I spent the next 45 minutes speaking with him. Nice. But in terms of challenge, it was trying to ensure that the book did the story justice and that we created in a way that followed the book on the McLaren F1 driving ambition and also that it looked good. And that took a while to get it right, but it was all there in the end. Now, working with uh, Rick, uh, you know, he spoke so highly of you, of what you handed to him, try to then take all this and make it look pretty as a graphic designer. You're the wordsmith. Uh, how was that collaboration? Was it fun to work with him, or did you pretty much say, hear the words, I'll go have fun? No, no, no. Um, it, it was a, a good collaboration. I mean, what I did at the beginning was obviously did the words, but I gave him a framework, um, slavishly copied from Driving Ambition. I have to say I wasn't, I wasn't really that um, innovative. I just said, this is what I'd like to do. These are the pictures I'd want, want in the various positions. And then Rick did that and developed it and then added the color to it, which he, he does so beautifully by including shadows and putting the pictures in such a way, much more than I would have done. So that worked really well. The issue, I suppose, is we were trying to find more and more pictures which were different. One of the slight criticisms I've read of, of my book on in reviews is that it's a bit samey. There are a lot of pictures of rockets, and I'd have to agree. But on on the book on the rocket, uh, there isn't much else you can do apart from pictures of rockets or indeed their creators. And there are only 47 of them. And so you can't take many pictures of them without having a repetition. So it was a struggle. But I was very fortunate in that Jay Leno took pictures of his car. The Gordon Harrison, the Beatles estates, took pictures of his. And uh, others 
who were mentioned in the book also did that and they gave it to me free of charge and I'm very very privileged to fulfill that absolutely what was your favorite part of this project uh, I, it has to be the writing because that's what I what I do once I got into the flow uh, it was it was a great thing to do but as part of that it was also having time with Chris Craft he's always a fun person and he made it so interesting and easy to do as did Gordon Murray when I interviewed him on a couple of occasions absolutely fantastic time couldn't couldn't have it better yes gordon a genius for sure his legacy icon but, but i think i'm very generous too yes well let's take a short break and we come back i want to talk about your personal passion for cars clive i mean you obviously you had one of these vehicles for a long time you got to be a car guy to have something like this and to keep it for a while so sit tight keep those seatbelts okay. tight we'll be right back let's step away from the conversation to talk about our charity of choice here at cars yeah america's Automotive Trust. America's Automotive Trust is a group of like-minded nonprofits that are working together to preserve and promote car culture across the country. Together, they provide scholarships and grants to aspiring technicians and restoration artists. They provide youth education programs and bring communities together through automotive-related events, car shows, and drives. Among those nonprofits is RPM Foundation, a terrific organization working to keep our favorite collector cars on the road. RPM was created to ensure that the specialized skills needed to care for classic automobiles, boats, and motorcycles continue to be passed down from generation to generation. They do this by supporting training for young people with a passion for restoration and setting them up with mentors who can share their valuable knowledge. So far, they've awarded more than $3.5 million to restoration education projects across 35 states. Incredible. To learn more about RPM or to donate to their mission, visit www.rpm.foundation. You'll be glad you did. Kevin Buckler is a winning racer and team owner of the Racers Group. He has over 100 professional wins, multiple wins at the 24-hour of Daytona, and a win at Le Mans. Kevin realized the racing world is about the people and founded Adobe Road Winery. He and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own with a racing twist. Just like in racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, superb taste, all blended together with a whole lot of fun. There are four carefully crafted blends with race-inspired names, Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. When you purchase all four, you get the entire lineup in a beautifully designed gift box. There's a printed description of the blends inside the box lid, and every bottle is parked in a protective die-cut placeholder. The bottles feature three-dimensional labels, and I promise you'll want to keep them after enjoying these delicious wines. The box is so cool, you'll want to keep it too. The Racing Series is a killer gift for the automotive enthusiasts in your life, and I have a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word, all caps, at checkout, you'll get $10 off any purchase of wine from the Racing Series. Your wine ships promptly and arrives quickly. Use the code CARSYEAH at checkout for $10 off on your purchase today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence with the Racing Series. Go to adoberoadwines.com and use the code CARSYEAH today to get your deal. Cheers! 
All right, we're back. I would love for you to share a story that instigated your personal passion for cars. A pivotal moment in your life when you knew, you know what? I'm a car guy. Yeah, well, I think like many guys particularly here, uh, my enthusiasm for cars started with toy cars on on the floor as a five-year-old mm-hmm. and driving them around the carpet. And then following that, uh, the scale electrics, um, slot car racing, and making model cars for myself when I was perhaps 10, going on to, to 12, 14 or so. Then at school, uh, when I became 16, I was really became bikey. I loved motorcycles, and I got motorcycles. But mainly because cars were out of my reach. I couldn't afford them. I wouldn't have been able to use them anyway, uh, because I wouldn't have had the money. So I, I bought, bought bikes, uh, and it wasn't until about when I was 22 that I realized that as I was at work at that point, I needed something to get around, which didn't make me a, a rocker uh, to my uh, my work colleagues. And I decided that I would uh, buy cars. And that's what I did. But because, again, not a particularly rich person at that time, I bought what I could. And my first car was a my grandmother's Ford Escort, uh, which is the car below the Ford Mondeo of the time. So uh, sort of so quite a small little little saloon car with a 1300 engine, which had about 45 bhp and wouldn't go up hills. So <laughs> that was a challenge. But I suppose for me, it was then um, that didn't give me any enthusiasm. Bikes were much better. I had Kawasaki turbos at the time, and it was much better. But then I bought a Lancia, which, as Ooh. you probably know, is an Italian mark. Yes. And I bought an HP 2000 IE in 1983. And uh, for me, that was really cool. Uh, it was a beautifully built but prone to rust car. It wasn't that old. And at the time, guys in, in Britain had what were called Ford Escort XR3Is, which had a 1600 engine. And here I was in an Italian thoroughbred with a 2000 injected engine. Yeah. And I thought, wow, here it is. I mean, I've hit the big leave. And then I wanted cars from then onwards. No doubt. Well, thanks to England and Matchbox by Lesney, that's what started it for me. In fact, I still have my first Matchbox by Lesney. My father bought me at the hardware store a nice oh, red, shiny Jaguar XKE Coupe. So, uh, wow. yep, sits here on my desk and uh, reminds me of uh, my youth and, and my hundreds of other Matchbox, which I've never let go. They're back there in a closet. Uh, maybe if I'm ever blessed with grandchildren, they can play with those someday. Uh, but, of course, they're yeah. all perfect, so I probably will be that crazy grandchild. Grandpa that says, look, don't touch. I sure hope not. Maybe I can. Oh, play. yes. Well, I've got five left, uh, one of which is a Chevy station wagon, a really early Leslie one. Is that the one with the top that slides back and forth? No, it's not. No, it's a, it's green with a red roof. It oh. doesn't have windows. It was it was the one that when they before they had interiors. Oh, OK. Wow. That is an early one. So it's early. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's a <laughs> well, I always ask about my guest's first special vehicle. Uh, obviously, the rocket had to be pretty special for you. Is that what you would consider your first special vehicle? I'm guessing that the Ford Escort's not, but the Lancia could be. That's a cool car. Yeah, I, I'm going to be a bit... Because um, you said first special vehicle. Yes. Uh, I thought about not ones that I've got now, but ones which were special to me. And it doesn't have to be because it's a nice car, particularly. Right. I'm going to take the Lancia out of the equation because I didn't have that very long because, unfortunately, after about a year and a half, a Volvo estate took it off the road. And, and oh, it no. But it would have rusted anyway, Mark, so it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> okay. um, but actually, my the most memories if I have 
is in a car called a Talbot Samba. Now, those in the United Kingdom will be going a Talbot Samba. That's a shed, isn't it, Clive? It's a rubbish car that was produced as, as a cheap hatchback. And I'd have to agree, it was. But in 1989, having had a motorcycle accident, I needed a car. And I bought a Talbot Samba Cabriolet, which was actually quite a nice little pin and freena conversion of the car with a 1400 twin carb engine, very light weight. And I had that car for 31 years and it's still in the garage now. 31 years? For, I've had it 31 years, yes. Oh my God. And it's, and it's still as cute as ever. And the build quality is shocking, but because it's led a pampered life and I was the second owner, it hasn't rusted like all of its counterparts. There are 16 left in the United Kingdom. Uh, there's probably a few more in France as it was a French car. But for me, that has taken me around France. It's taken me around Spain. And the most of its 50,000 odd miles have been done abroad. And it has given me so many memories. And as a consequence, that has to be my first special vehicle. What year would that be? What? It was a 1986 car. So it was effectively a Peugeot 104 uh, in a different bodysuit. Okay, now I know it. Okay, uh, Tal- a T-O- T-L- T-A-L-B-O-T, Talbosan. Yes, that's it. Yeah, very much kind of like a, a golf. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Hatch- yeah, very, very, and the, yeah. The Cabriolet was uh, in the same market as the first golf uh, Cabriolet. Okay, I'm trying. I wonder now. Yeah, related to the French vehicle, uh, and it was built in France, right? It was built in France. Yes, it was a French car. Yeah. Who was the? You know, you look at the design of that car, and it sure looks a lot like like that Golf design. I mean, a lot of cars in that era, the hatchbacks were the kings, right? Everybody was yep. making them. Try- Do you know who the designer was on that vehicle? The the Talbot Samba was a development of the Peugeot 104, and it was done in house by Talbot engineers in Poissy in Paris. But uh, the conversion to the Cabriolet was done by Pininfarina. Okay. It has, who did all of the cabs at that time. It has that essence to it. And I had in college, my first new car was a Volkswagen Scirocco first edition of that car, which kind of had a little bit of the same essence to it, although that was a Jario design. Yeah. But a beautiful little car. Uh, they all rusted away too, though, so... So <laughs> the, yeah. the way it was. Fascinating. Well, you're the only person out of 1,700 plus people that named that vehicle. So that's pretty well, cool. I don't think anybody else would not. But if you wanted something special, it is for me. And we took it to Spain only two years ago. And apart from the fact that you do notice lack of power steering when you've had power steering for 30 years, it still was quite good. It's quite peppy, and uh, it did let us down. It did break down at the end, but she's an old lady, <laughs> and it was a very easy fix. So we, we got there and got back. I think it's pretty cool you still have it. That's pretty neat. Few people can say that about a vehicle. Now, I'm going to crawl into your head a little bit here, Clive. Bit of an introspective question. If you woke up tomorrow and you were manifest as a vehicle, not what you want to be, but how you perceive your personality in a vehicle, what would Clive Neville be? And more importantly, why? Right. You know, I think I would probably be that tall, but Samba Cabriolet. Okay. I can't see myself being an Aston Martin or a Ferrari. Uh, I, not even a rocket. You know, it's not, I'm not that sort of person. And I'll tell you why I think that I could be a tall, but Samba Cabriolet. Yep. It's a bit eccentric and left field as a, as a choice. Uh, and I think probably I am. It's, very nimble on its feet. It doesn't carry any 
excess baggage. It's lightweight, a bit like me again. Uh-huh. And it doesn't try too hard to look cool, but I think somehow pulls it off sufficiently. I'm not saying I do it effectively, but sufficiently. <laughs> and as, as a, because people, when I go in that car, not, and perhaps they don't do that with me, but when I go in the company, I go, look at that. We haven't seen one of those. Isn't that cute? And perhaps I'm slightly cute, especially now with my COVID long hair, um, which uh, is not normal, I have to say. And also, I think the, the, it can laugh at itself, but can hang out with the big guys if he wishes to, because I don't really have any, um, I, I'm quite self-deprecating. But in terms of the, um, the, the Talbot, I remember taking on a run um, with the UK Porsche Club, because I was a member of the Porsche Club at that time. Mm-hmm. And I took it because I thought, oh, I'm going to show them my little car as well as my, my other car. And we were on windy roads of Britain, and I, it was going really well, and I taking it to the max, obviously, because I only had 80 brake horsepower. But, um, and, but I was. And it was rolling around, as it does, because it's French, but it was holding to the road like a limpet. And everybody was saying afterwards, wow, yeah. that was quick. And um, perhaps that's a bit, a bit like me. Sometimes I can be a bit surprising. Well said, my friend. Great answer. <laughs> one of my favorites. What's one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your successes in life? Um, I'm, I don't know. That was a really difficult question uh, because I think I'm a bit of a quandary in many respects. Mm. I Part of me is incredibly ordered and want to, wants to have everything just so. But at the same time, I'm all over the place in other respects. Just ask my wife. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't think that I have anything which I can say personal habits, which make it very – I probably think most of my habits are not that great. <laughs> maybe it's the balance of the two that somehow evens you out a little bit. So Maybe. But maybe we'll bring your wife into the play at the end of this talk, and we'll see what she has to say about it, or maybe not. Oh, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure I want my wife to get involved in that either. <laughs> if you could have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, either living or someone who's passed, who would it be? Uh, having had the pleasure of – having conversations with Chris Craft and his family um, from 2008 to, uh, to, to now, uh, it would have to be Chris again because he is the master of the anecdote. His life has been so interesting mm-hmm. um, from being a developer in London, losing all his money, making it again, developing the rocket, being a racing driver, living life to the max. Yes. He always has stories to tell, and I could listen to them forever. Yes, magnificent. When it comes to automotive advice or motorbike advice, what's the best advice someone else has ever offered to you? Uh, I don't think I've received any. Perhaps it would would have been, Mark, if they'd said it, don't sell your rocket. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a few vehicles that I wish somebody had said that to me as well. Uh, yeah, they, they do slip out of our hands for variety of reasons but uh, do you know who owns your old rocket i do yes 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 I, i'm uh, familiar with the, the new owner okay. and with lots of the other owners obviously as a consequence of writing the book uh, but i'd had it for 11 years uh and somebody else needed to have the joy of driving one i think yeah with as few of those that exist definitely Exactly right. Very kind of you, Clyde. Thanks for doing that. Now, when it comes to resources, today we have unimaginable resources from when you and I were children, if only. Uh, What's one of a favorite go-to for you? Maybe a website you find yourself on, a supplier, an app? I I, um, look at websites, a forum 
for overt uh, link to cars that I have or are interested in, particularly to see what you need to do to do X, Y or Z to the car. Uh, and I find those very useful. I suppose the thing that I do, do try and avoid, though, with those is that I don't try and look too deeply at all the things where they say there's a problem with the car or this, this, or the otherwise you'd be so depressed that you bought something because you think it will blow up immediately. Oh, I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it gets a little bit too crazy. Uh, you just ignore all of that for sure. Indeed. I always ask my guests if there's a favorite book. Uh, obviously, we're going to be mentioning and listing uh, your book, The Light Car Company Rocket, The Singular Vision of Two Men. But is there another book you'd like to share with us that you really enjoyed? Yeah, thank you. I think there are many in all fields of writing. But for me, uh, a book which is not car related um, in this instance, but if you want to read about the history of the United Kingdom uh, since 1945, uh, then you need to read the book called The Making of Modern Britain by Andrew Marr, who's a UK uh, television journalist. Although it's not been updated since 2007 and therefore hasn't covered the world catastrophes since then, it explains well what the UK had to deal with over the previous uh, 55 years and why it got into such a muddle over Brexit. Oh, I'll have to get a copy of that. I would love to read that. Sounds very interesting. Listeners, I'll put a link to these books, including Clive's book on his show notes page. Just go to carsyad.com, type in Clive Neville, and you'll find a links right there. And if you love automotive books, or if you'd love to get a great gift for yourself and for a buddy, a chap, uh, buy two copies. And uh, send one off to a friend. Uh, they will love you for it. One sits on my shelf, and uh, it's uh, quite a delight. Fascinating history. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here, Clive. I'm going to ask you a rather fun question. It's the new year. We're into 2021. Thank goodness. <sighs> Take a breath, everybody. I'm going to buy you a very cool car, a collector car or a motorbike. It could be either or. But there's a couple rules to my game, as my listeners know. You can't sell it and fund a new home so if you pick a ferrari gto you're stuck with it not a bad car to be stuck with i want you to pick something though that ticks all the boxes something that you would enjoy and drive take out in the countryside but here's the hard part it's the only one cool collector vehicle you can have so it needs to kind of do a lot of things for you so what's it going to be well you'd be pleased it's not my tour with samba (laughs) however i um i'm not a great collector um but and and I have a passion for cars, but it's not for, for collecting them or things that are otherwise unattainable. And I'm not really interested in cars that are completely unusable in the real world. Mm-hmm. So that probably rules out the supercars. But I am privileged currently to own a, a 1990s Honda NSX manual and a more recent BMW A Roadster. And in my view, both are spectacular vehicles and a, the pinnacle of engineering from their, from their eras. Uh, both were game changers, even if they weren't considered to be game changers by the general population at the time. Mm-hmm. But, the new, but the NSX is certainly regarded now as a as a car of the 90s and yeah. changed the way that Ferrari did business. So I would have to have one of those. And they both exist in my garage now, so you don't have to buy me one. You're <laughs> well, pleased. you're going to be a cheap date. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but what you have given me is, a, is the quandary of work, working out which one would I keep. Yeah. Um, and I think it would have to be the NSX. And there's only one reason for that. And it's not the fact that it's got a lovely V6 engine. It's for the fact that I'm not going to get any nimbler 
in my old age, uh, and I won't be able to get in and out of the I-8. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> nice answer. You know, I've had friends that have had those NSXs, wonderful cars. Uh, they, To me, when they came out, they were so extreme, and they were a bit hum- hamstrung by the Honda name. Not that there's anything wrong with Hondas, because they make fantastic cars, but people just had a hard time relating the Honda brand to that. Kind of like when Volkswagen came out with their very high-end model uh, they were trying to compete with a high-end BMW Mercedes, and people just couldn't get their heads around it, that VW emblem on the front. But if you've ever driven one, listeners, and I have, you'll understand what Clive is talking about. They are wonderful. They are. How long have you had yours? Um, it's my third. I had my first in 97. I've had this one since 2005. Wow. Okay. She's a keeper. Well, you know, I love it when my guests already have what they want because that means you've hit the high time. <laughs> you've hit the pinnacle of life. You have your dream car in your garage, and I'm very, very happy for that, Clive. You've taken us on a magnificent ride today, and thank you so much for spending some time with me. Always good to be across the pond in the UK. Before I let you go, Would you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you drive off into the English countryside in that beautiful Honda NSX? I would say, first of all, I repeat, don't get caught out, but enjoy it. Ah, yes. Because it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Yeah, and boy, we learned that in 2020, and uh, it seems to be continuing a little bit here into the new year. Is there a way for people to keep up with you? Do you play in the social media world, or are you kind of a retired, quiet guy these days? I, I'm 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 quiet. I, clearly, uh, there is in the back of my mind uh, another book, uh, and I have made had discussions with BMW to talk to write a book on the i8, um, and they've been very kind to to help me with that. Uh, I don't have a Twitter or, or any form of hashtag, okay. but if people want to get in touch with me, they can get in touch with me through Porter Press. Porter Press, absolutely. I'll put a link to my friends at Porter Press. They do. A magnificent job creating, publishing some of the most wonderful automotive books. I'll put a link to their website. You can go get this book. You can find any of the other books. They've been such great friends to me, and they introduced me to Clive, and that's pretty darn cool so that we could have this talk today. Clive, welcome to the new year. Happy new year, my friend. I wish you the best uh, going forward, and I'll tell you what. When you write that next book, you call me up, and we'll have you back on the show, and we'll talk about that. How does that sound? It sounds great, Mark. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You're welcome. You've been so generous with your time. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Bye-bye. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, Thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah! podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at carsyeah.com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah! website at carsyeah.com. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to carsyeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!